Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn. I'm Julie Cook. I'm Matt Downing. And I'm Janine Dunn. And you're listening to Rethinking EDU. Thanks for tuning in to our, what seems to be, I think, just a little sporadic podcast now now these days as we're working on these mini-series. And you're in the middle of our mini-series on teacher prep programs. And we're hanging out. Um, we've transitioned, sadly, from Discord, big tier, because they've stopped our recording bot. We'll transition back someday, I hope. And we're here on Zoom, which is a kind of a weird experience. Co-hosts, I don't know about you, but we, we spent 47 episodes doing no video and now all of a sudden audio only and now all of a sudden we have video do y'all like prepare i know i combed my beard before this episode <laughs> looks good looks thanks, good thanks i appreciate that and and with us in this uh in this conversation we've got uh dr sarah fine and carol battle from the high tech high graduate school of education sarah how are you doing tonight i'm great i'm very excited to talk with y'all we're, we're coming to you from san diego so it's um not as cold as it is where you are yeah I, it's not cold here don't don't even worry it's just snowy you know <laughs> and carol how are you doing tonight doing great thanks so much for having us i'm excited to be here and share what we got going on in our residency program yeah awesome awesome so i'm gonna do a little brief bio for each of you and then just ask uh, some real basic questions about you know how you came to be in education because i think that's a that's an important question to ask these days what's our motivations for being here. So Dr. Sarah Fine is an educator and scholar working at the intersection of practice and research. And she directs the San Diego Teacher Residency, which is housed within the High Tech High Graduate School of Education. And we're going to talk about the San Diego Teacher Residency during this conversation. Um, and she teaches courses in ed leadership at the University of California in San Diego, the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And she's written for a wide range of publications, including a recent book, co-authored with Jal Mehta is entitled In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Transform the American High School. And that book was an award winner. I don't know anything about book awards, Sarah. So tell me, what is this book award that y'all received? Well, it's very hard to pronounce. I'm not even sure I can do it now. <laughs> it's called the Grawmeyer Award. So. Okay. Um, it was just okay, an okay. opportunity for us to share uh, with a wider audience some of the things that we found. Um, the book was a almost a 10-year project where my uh, colleague and I spent a lot of time in a lot of schools, um, and it very much informs the work I do now, so we could chat about that later. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and I know that uh, Jal Mehta was a guest lecturer in one of our classes in our doctoral program, too, and so I appreciate his work and am an avid reader of his stuff. Um Carol, Carol Battle, you are 20 years in veteran public uh, education, teacher administrator, everything in between. Let's go two decades. I appreciate that. And your experience as the one African-American student and teacher in most of your academic settings have really shaped and driven your pursuits in equity and diversity issues. Um, and you've taught in Texas, California, in charter, traditional schools. Prior to joining the High Tech High Graduate School of Education, you served as the CSUSM's 2018 to 2020 Distinguished Teacher in Residence and Elementary and Middle School Humanities Teacher in San Diego, which is really awesome. And you uh, are also a doctoral candidate, which is super exciting in education leadership. Um, and so we welcome. Thanks. Thanks for coming here. Carol, I would love to hear you've been in education 20 years. What was the thing that got you there? What was the thing that really pushed you 
Um, and then Sarah, I'm going to ask you the same question. Thank you. I believe I really have, the answer's got two parts. One is I was one of those little kids teaching my stuffed animals way back <laughs> when I was old enough to play school. And I was that kid in preschool who called myself the teacher also. And I'd do my own work, but I was walking around making sure the other kids were doing their work. And so um, I've always had a, a passion for children and animals too. And so I kind of am one of those people who feel that teaching is a vocation and I was called into it and I try to run away from it. And everything I was doing on my free time was teaching it was really kind of crazy. So I finally realized, yes, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And then also what really keeps me going is I want to be the teacher that I didn't have in my entire K-12 educational experience. I never had one black teacher uh, only literature that I saw in my classes was slaves, was uh, civil rights people. I never just saw a little kid playing with their cat in the neighborhood. Like I never saw people like me doing normal things that people like me do. And so I promised myself I was going to do everything I could to change that. And so all these years teaching, yes, I was in the, I count, you know, thousand of kids or so that I've had um, for many of them, I was the one black teacher they will ever have in K through 12. So I took that role very seriously. And now as a teacher educator, I'm realizing the influence that I have goes even further than my young students in my room. So that's really a, a driving force behind what I do, why I do it, and why I continue to do it. Thank you, Carol. That's awesome and super inspiring. And yeah. Yeah. Sarah, I want to know a similar answer um, for you. What brought you to education? Well, my answer is a little similar. Um, I was not the one. I'm, I'm a white woman, so I was actually like surrounded by people who looked like me. Um, I did come from a family of educators, which I think is often a story we hear from folks who decide to go into teaching. So my um, Paternal grandmother was a school teacher in the Boston Public Schools for her whole career. Um, I heard a lot from her about her students and her experiences, and she always wanted more for me, um, was very ambitious for me, and uh, was sort of jointly like proud and disappointed when I decided to become a teacher after college, um, because for her, become a teacher, becoming a teacher was kind of one of a very small number of choices she had in uh, the 1930s as a woman. Um, and for me, it was uh, kind of, I stumbled into it originally, um, did some teaching in college, enjoyed it, was like Carol, and then I kind of found myself teaching regardless of what I was doing. Um, and over the course of five years working in the District of Columbia Public Schools, I, I kept thinking I was going to go back to graduate school in literature, like, oh, I'll just teach for a while. This is a very common trope, by the way, which I think is very problematic. I'll just teach for a while, and then I'll go do something else. Um, and kept telling myself that story until about three or four years in when I realized actually teaching and learning was far more interesting and complicated and fascinating and impactful. Um, and tied to questions that seemed really important than um, anything having to do with literature, even though I still love literature, still teach our uh, English and social science candidates how to help their kids love literature. Um, so I kind of uh, fell into that as well and um, have been teaching ever since. And, and over the course of the last 17 years, I've really pivoted from uh, working with younger students to working with adults um, and have found that to be just fascinating and, and parallel in many ways, but also different in other ways, which we can talk about later. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. And I don't know, co-hosts, if we ever started a um, 
an episode with that question, but it seems particularly point, poignant in this conversation as we explore teacher preparation and particularly around a time when there's lots of questions. You know, we're recording this in February of 2022, and there's lots of questions right now about why one would become a teacher. You know, there's lots of questions right now about um, people questioning teachers' motivations for being in the classroom, right? Or for not being in the classroom or for wanting the best for students, for themselves, for their families and and everything in between. And so you all at um, Carol and Sarah are working at the Graduate School of Education at High Tech High. I'm gonna pass the mic over to Matt so he can kind of explore what that is and give our audience some flavor about what's going on there. Thanks, Mike. And thanks for starting the conversation off with that. You're right. We don't, we, I don't think we have uh, opened up the conversation with, with that question, but that's really good to reflect upon and, and think about even the listeners, as you're listening, thinking back to sort of why, if you're in education, why you chose that. Uh, but Sarah, I want to start off a question with you getting right into high tech highs, uh, GSE, but more specifically the San Diego teacher residency. So for me, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about the backstory of High Tech High's GSE. And then if you could get more into the San Diego teacher residency, that would be great. Yeah, sure, that's that's a lot. So I might punt to Carol at some point. Um, <laughs> yeah, pass it on. I got I have some questions specifically for her too, but, but pass it back and forth. Well, so um, High Tech High Graduate School was the first ever standalone graduate school of education that kind of came out of a, a network of schools. So. High Tech High Schools is a network of charter schools um, around San Diego County, and they opened in 2000, their first school, um, gradually started adding on um, campuses. And I think it was 2005, there was just a lot of teachers who were very excited by High Tech High's, uh, at the time, really innovative model of um, project-based learning, its commitments to um, abolishing tracking, thinking about like integrations of various types. And they really wanted to do more professional learning and they just started meeting together. Um, and at some point, some uh, brilliant people were like, we should just call this graduate school. That's what we're doing. Like we're learning together. We're inquiring into problems of practice. We're reading stuff, we're writing stuff. Um, and it, it really emerged very organically um, as a project that was about developing um, teachers within this particular um, network of schools in a very deep way. And so uh, I think the first program that was formally established was a master's degree in educational leadership um, through the graduate school. It was very, very small. Um, and it took a really long time to get accredited and yeah. sort of get the stamp of approval of the powers that be to kind of stand alongside other graduate schools because it was it was a really new model. It was not something that people were used to. Um, so it took about 10 years for the, and, and the graduate school was gradually growing and adding on, you know, getting grants to do this, that, and the other, and adding people to its programs. But it wasn't until 2015 that um, High Tech High's Graduate School became a fully accredited institution um, and really blazed the way, I think, for places like Relay, places like Alder, Spazada. There's all these, they call them like NGSEs now, um, that are, are now blossoming. So, um, and so actually, it was an accreditation process that was, uh, they, a lot of people around high tech and the early days of the GSE thought we should be running a teacher preparation program out of this out of this institution. Um, yeah. That is just a logical next step. Like we have so much institutional knowledge and passion, um, but it took until we got full accreditation to even be able to dream of that. And then, of course, we had to get an 
for accreditation because California is California. So it took another few years for us to um, be certified by the Commission on Teacher Credentialing to offer um, a teaching license plus a master's degree. Um, and that allowed us to open up the program we run San Diego Teacher Residency. Um, so we opened our doors I, and I've been involved from the very beginning since before we were quite ready to open. Um, so it's really been my like design build career dream to do this work. Um, and we opened uh, the doors for our first cohort in 2018. Um, so this is our, we're almost done with our fourth year of operation and we've, we've really been, um, oh my goodness, learning a lot along the way. But all the way through, and Carol, I'll, I'll ask you to follow up on this, but our, our goal has been twofold. One, to build on the innovation of the teacher residency model. That was, we did not dream it up. Um, it, it came out of Boston actually, and has really spread across the country as a different way to structure teacher preparation that is um, sort of honors the complexity of the, of the profession, number one, like it, it acknowledges that it takes a long time to learn how to teach well. And then two, provides more um, substantive and financial supports for people who are trying to learn so that we can attract more diverse folks into the profession in the first place. So that's like the residency model. Um, and then also we, the sort of substantive part of what we're trying to do is we're, we're really trying to prepare teachers for the schools we need, not the schools we have. And so we're trying to draw together the project-based learning and deeper learning commitments of high-tech high and high-tech graduate school with a commitment to social justice education um, and culturally sustaining pedagogy. So our, our pillars of our program are, we talk about deeper learning and justice and that we need to be teaching for both of those things and thinking about how they intersect in our schools um, so that we can really serve students differently and, and, and better. Um, Carol, you wanna pick it up there? I will try. I am almost one year in to the Indigo Teacher Residency. So I am still learning so much about the odds and ends of both the historical aspects and uh, the goals of what we're trying to do. And I think um, really in true high-tech, high innovative fashion, that's what the San Diego Teacher Residency was born from. It's definitely a different way of preparing teachers. So we are taking them in and we're wrapping our arms around them for two years. The first year, they are taking courses, they're embedded within their school, they're doing service for their school while they're learning those deeper learning and social justice strands, as Sarah mentioned. And then the second year, they go out, get a wonderful job, and we still have ties into them as they finish their master's degree. And we can offer the support and mentoring that research shows that new teachers really need to make it um, a lasting career in education. And so it is really for me coming from the outside, it's been an amazing place to be innovative, creative, and really infuse a lot of those things I learned as a teacher along the way, or a lot of things I was on my own, I had to figure out on my own. We are able to adjust our curriculum things in, switched it around, and good, you know, COVID has definitely um, caused a need for change. And unlike other places, we can change. We can pivot on the drop of a dime in terms of um, what our schools need, what our students need, and what the world is showing us that education needs. That's great. Thanks, uh, both of you, for, for bringing us in, sort of laying a foundation for like how the school was founded and where the residency came from and giving us that helps us 
get a deeper understanding of what, what you're doing there. Uh, Carol, I wanted to start with you with this question. So you've been there a year, congratulations. Uh, as, as you think about just this past year uh, that you've been there with the residency program, what's been one or maybe two unique obstacles that you have faced along the way? There's so many. To- <laughs> um, I think one obstacle that I've seen, and, and actually that would happen in COVID or not, is making sure that our residents have cooperating teachers that are in line with our ideas about social justice, and deeper learning, and that they are able to um, support our residents in a way that maybe they weren't even trained. And so I know that the stress of COVID has caused a lot more well, distress, tension, all of the things. And so that's been one, I believe, one of the obstacles that we've had to work through. And then another is just, you know, we joke about pivoting and flexibility and all those things, but it's been times about a million. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to help our residents learn while shape-shifting pretty mm-hmm. much, be what they need to be as students and as novice educators. So mm-hmm. it's um, it's been quite the adventure. I think it's definitely kept Sarah and I and, and mm-hmm. the faculty on um, on pivot, on swivel, all the things and being flexible with us too. And, and I, we've innovated and created some things that um, I don't know that we would have if we wouldn't have been pushed um, by COVID to already be more flexible than we already have. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So how have you navigated that that specific struggle with the cooperating teachers, maybe not being on the same page length as far as what you're trying to get the, the resident teachers to do in their classroom? How have you tried to navigate that? One of the components of uh, being a cooperating teacher is that they attend um, training with us as well. And so have them come and their residents substitute for them while they're released to come to us and spend time doing training. And it's everything from how to best support your resident to here's some of the things that your residents are learning. Here's the articles they're reading. Now let's discuss how does this play into your practice? And also because we're flexible, we're able to take the issues that we're seeing our residents having and incorporate them into those regular trainings that we have with the cooperating hmm. teachers. Sarah, do you want to add something to that? Carol got it. I, I was going to say, that I was going to just kind of put a put a number on it because I think like, for example, California um, requires that cooperating teachers are the mentors who host um, pre-service folks uh, participate in 10 hours of you know professional development around being a CT a year. Um, we offer, I think, closer to 80 or something like that over the course of the year. So um, it, it's a big ask. I mean, I would say this this year, even more than previous years, uh, it's been we've had to sort of pause and think about under what conditions do we pull out some of the most experienced teachers in our schools who are the ones hosting our residents? Do we pull them out um, for this kind of experience? And I would say first couple of years of our program, we felt very unapologetic about that. It's a great opportunity for our residents to get some alone time with their students without eyes on them. Um, Cause although it's great to be coached, it's also nice to experience just like, okay, you close the doors, just you and the kids, what are you gonna do? Um, but the last couple of years, it's been really tricky to think about um, the stress that the cooperating teachers are living with as well and the needs of their schools. And um, we've noticed that there's maybe less appetite or um, 
ability to engage in professional learning right now than there has been in the past. And, and we see why it's not their fault. It's, it's, they just are at their utter limit right now in terms of what they can take on. And that's not, that's not a conducive space to be like, learn how to be a more culturally responsive mentor or, you know, engage in new practices for eliciting student thinking. Like normally these are exactly the folks who are really excited to talk about that. And, and it's been tricky. Yeah, well, thanks for jumping in with those numbers, because I think it, it does a couple things. It shows what your program values, right? That time element different than what the state uh, even mandates way above that. But then I also think that illustration uh, shows another thing that you've talked about so far in our brief, you know, how long we've been talking is flexibility. Like you've mentioned that you guys are flexible, you're willing to pivot, you're willing to innovate, and, and you're doing that with the hours and how you're dealing with the cooperating teachers. Um, yeah, and that, that's interesting to think about. And it's also uh, a demonstration of you guys performing that and doing that in your program. And I, I wanted to think about too, so we just talked about an obstacle and I wanted to throw this out. Um, as you think back, you know, we could just stick with the past year or so. What's been a success? And Sarah, we'll start with you. What's been a success as you think about this residency program? I think the 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 greatest strength thus far of our program is a reflection of what I see as the greatest strength of our um, graduate school and of high tech high schools, which is a kind of like really insistent focus on the humans who are at the center of everything. Um, I think I think we're it's not just about like buzzwords like oh we're going to personalize the experience for you, but it's about like human human needs first, right? So getting to know our cohorts and helping them get to know each other as full people, not just as people who are trying to learn how to do a particular thing um, that will, you know, provide them a salary and, um, you know, job stability and so forth, but really like, who are you um, in the world and how did that come to be? And how does that affect the way that you engage with others and where do you want to grow and what do you need to grow and under what conditions do you thrive and under what conditions do you crumple up and not function anymore? And, we see all of that. So um, we have a very, very strong cohort culture. I think we have a pretty strong um, sense of like transparency and relational trust with fact between faculty and students um, because we we similarly try to bring our whole selves to the work. We try to be vulnerable with our students. We invite them into decision-making processes. We try as hard as we can to model what it's like to be a teacher and to not know what you're doing sometimes or to do things wrong. and not just apologize, but say, hey, okay, that didn't work. Let's all huddle and think about what we can do next time or tomorrow. Um, so I think that that piece around like never forgetting that it's not the, the work matters and the technique and the pedagogy and the the language, it's it's all important, but also like if you don't put the humans at the center first, then you're, you're forfeiting the ability to, to do any of the other things. Um, and, and I think our institution is really good at that as well. Doesn't mean we we have plenty of things to work on and get better at, but um, I I think that that's a very strong value that's like emanated throughout our our structures and our and like any moment in the program, I would hope that you would feel that if you were to walk in. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Carol. What do you think? I think to jump off of what Sarah said is just like relationships were key in my classroom, I think relationships are a pillar of what our program is and what a residency allows because we spend so much more time with them. So I could say, I know every one of my residents inside and out. I know their strengths. I know what stresses them out. I know if they've turned in their couch CPA or not. I know 
how they're doing in their classrooms. I know what their cooperating teachers' concerns are with them. I mean, just so many things. It's so personalized so that I, and I've heard from the residents, they appreciate the connection and they know that this isn't just a support system for right now, that we're going to be colleagues and this is a long lasting thing and that they see us modeling lifelong learning. They see us problem solving. They see us, like Sarah said, admitting, wow, that didn't work. We're going to regroup. What do you all think? Let's work on it together and doing the things that we're asking them to do with their students. They're doing those things. Um, we're able to do those things with our residents and vice versa. So the relationships is just been, and I've never had um, professional relationships like this before. That's awesome, Sarah and Carol. And I want to be there and visit and hang out with you all and your students. Sounds like all of the things that we talk about on this podcast all the time. Um, yes, yes, definitely. We'll add it to the list of places we need to visit. Um, as long as you all, uh, you know, reciprocate and come and visit our schools too. We would love to see you all. I want to get into, you know, we, we talk, we're talking sort of around the San Diego teacher residency. I want to get into that in a second, but before we do, I want to get into some of the other things that you think make the GSE at high tech high, particularly unique. What I've heard you say so far is flexibility. I've heard you say relationships those seem to be things that are not as common in traditional teacher prep programs. I've heard you talk about the amount of time that you spend with mentor teachers, which is amazing. I think my mentor teacher, I don't even know if they ever met with anybody from my GSE, maybe one time, maybe twice. Um, and so I want, if you could just share what other some what are some other defining characteristics that you see in the GSE um, that you think would be useful to highlight? And then I'm going to pass the mic over to Janine, and we're going to dive into the residency. I'd like to start with that one as the newest member. Um, I remember my very first day I came, and it was during COVID, so it was virtual, but it was an all-team meeting that was um, themed Courageous Conversations. And the thing I left was, was the quote, say the thing. And so learning to have radical candor and learning to address the issues and making sure that people are called in a conversation rather than the loudest voices get to make the decisions. Again, I've never worked anywhere um, educational or otherwise where there was such a value in holding a light on everyone's strengths and knowing that we're stronger together when we're allowed to be human and we're allowed to go, you know, make choices and our voices matter. Because I did try to hide that first day. I was like, yeah, it's my first day. They're like, and what do you think about it? And I was like, right, right, right. Calling me in and here I go. And um, I know that I have told Sarah, I have never done so many new things or things that I've never done before. Never thought that I could do until I joined the GSC because they believed that I could do it. And they gave me the support and I knew that they were going to be there. If I fell, they're going to help me get up and start over. Um, I feel like that is something that permeates through the entire organization. And um, I know that I feel more supported than I've ever felt anywhere. And I've stepped out and tried things that I never would have tried, even outside of the GSE, because I knew that I had that support system within. Sarah, what do you think? I'm like, uh, I don't know how to follow that. I'm, I mean, I, I know you deal that way, Carol, but I, Welling up with I, I am, I am. I mean, I, I've only been working there for, well, six years. So it's, it's a while, but not, I'm not like, um, 
I didn't help to to start the institution, but um, mm -hmm. I so agreed with what Carol said. I feel like profoundly supported um, and sort of seen in my work in ways that uh, I don't take for granted at all. Working um, peripherally at some other institutions of higher ed with, who have amazing humans working within them, but not necessarily the amazing culture that goes along with the institution. Um, I, I also think so. Something that's really specific to Haitakai's graduate school and, and unique and important, I think, is that I would say at this point about seventy-five percent of the folks who uh, I can, who are my colleagues, um, both in and beyond SDTR, are former teachers and school leaders, and not just former teachers and school leaders, but they're teachers and school leaders who spent a lot of time working in one way or another toward kind of liberation, humanization, deep learning. Um, some of them have experience at high tech schools, uh, some of them do not, but there's a really strong stance toward what we're trying to do in our schools and what it looks and sounds like when it happens. And it's, it's not necessarily a, a restrictive, you know, proscriptive stance, like this is what you need to do. But I, I think there's a very like strong shared core of value and a vision for what, what schools are supposed to be doing. Um, and, and I don't think you can assume that at a lot of institutions of higher ed. I think a lot of graduate schools of education really value um, kind of diversity of, of thought, which can be really powerful, but also it's, it's not conducive to people having conversations together about like, okay, we agree that what we're trying to do is X and we have all these different talents and ways of trying to make it happen. How do we, how do we maximize our value? So it really feels like a kind of um, intentional value-driven community. Um, and, I, and I'm not sure there's that many like IHEs out there that, that have that. Um, and, and that shared vision for teaching and learning, I think, really informs the way that almost any learning experience, like it, whether it's the professional learning team that offers programming for teachers or whether it's the other master's program or some of the grant work that allows some of my colleagues to work with other school districts um, on various projects. I, I think there's a kind of like stance around how people learn and what's important in learning environments that um, is very consistent. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I'm sure that some of our listeners are probably like wondering just as I am, you know, how do we, how do we get connected? How do <laughs> I want to come out there too and uh, connect with all of you. And, you know, now hearing all of that and now wondering too, like how this all flows into the development of the, um, the San Diego teacher residency program that you have going on. And I'm just wondering like all the little, the little nitty gritty details now. And I'm thinking of it from the perspective of like somebody who's interested in getting into the teaching profession, as well as the way that you connect with these mentor teachers. Um, I guess we'll start with the yeah the the prospective teachers, and you know how do you how do you get into the program? What are the requirements of the program? What can I expect? You know, by the end of it, I know you mentioned a little bit about um, about it earlier, but can we go a little deeper now? I I can start a little. I'll I'll take the why, and Carol, maybe you can dig in also on the kind of what. Um, I I would I we try to always start with why. Um, I sometimes forget, and then I remember like <laughs> that's what what moves people. I think the why for, for somebody who would be considering um, like why this program over a different program or why this type of pathway over a different type of pathway, there's two whys and they connect to what we said earlier. One is despite what pop culture and maybe American culture tells us, teaching is an enormously complex endeavor. 
Um, there's a lot of both technical and non-technical things you need to know and know how to do and beliefs that you need to develop and knowledge of the world and self and the disciplines and people learn and development. And there's just so many overlapping bodies of knowledge that um, a prospective teacher needs to have some foundation of in order to feel like they can do their work with any kind of efficacy at all. So although there's lots of pathways that allow teachers to jump into the profession with very little training, they're not, we don't see those as sustainable because if you jump in to do something that complicated with that little support and foundation, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, you're gonna get pushed out because you're gonna feel like you don't know how to do your job well. Because even, even when you do have all the trainings and support, you still end up on that boundary of feeling, oh, I just, I, I still need to know more. I still could be better. So I think number one, it's, we, we find it a challenge because there's just this like um, huge landscape of different ways to end up in a classroom as a teacher. Um, it's very hard for folks who are thinking about entering the profession to even make sense of it because there's so many different pathways. Um, but I, I think it's really important to kind of help prospective teachers understand that regardless of where you choose to go, it, it is in your and your students' best interest in the long term to choose a program that's really going to give you a long period of time where you're, you're sort of getting tooled up with some foundational skills. And that includes at least a year of student teaching. I mean, we know from the research as well as other sources of personal experience that like at least a year is, is barely enough to feel like you have uh, some of the tools that you need to be on your own in a classroom. So that's where we think just like residency models in general, which insist on that full year of clinical practice before you are a teacher record are like absolutely the way to go. And um, we're very invested in trying to kind of advocate for policies that shut down some of the loopholes that um, allow folks to get into classrooms sooner. Um, and we understand why they exist, like we need humans in the in the rooms with the children, but also like it's a catch-22 because, you know, the more loopholes we open, the harder it is for people to choose to spend more time um, preparing uh, when they could, we, they could make a salary tomorrow if they, you know, sign the right document. So there's that part. And then, um, and then I really think that there's that piece around like, what are the values that you want to learn how to teach for? And if you are really deeply committed to transformative education and to humanizing education, liberating education, all the things we know our schools do not automatically do and have not historically done for many students, you need a program, again, regardless of whether it's ours or others, I know plenty of others that are doing really good thinking on this front, you need a program that's going to put those aspirations at the center of every, every learning experience that that candidates have. Um, so it's, you know, you've got to look for programs where it's not just like equity 101 is, you know, your three-week module and then you go do all the other stuff. It's like, no, 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 this is at the center of everything, every conversation, no matter what discipline or domain of knowledge we're talking about, we're crosswalking to questions about like who gets to be here, who feels belongingness, who, who gets to have to be seen as capable. Um, so I think like a program like ours is one that both helps to address the question of like, how do you do something so complex when you don't have any experience to start with? And then also like, what is it you're trying to do as a teacher? Um, and do you actually want to be doing work that is going to change things and not just kind of um, perpetuate the patterns that we know are so problematic? So that's the why. Carol, you wanna talk about kind of like more specifically who ends up in our program and what it looks like for them? Sure. I was thinking as you were talking that we have such an eclectic group that has been in these two cohorts that I've had an opportunity to help teach and, and select. And 
we've got people who just graduated out of school. We've got people who have been out in the world doing things for a little bit. We've had people who had professions like one right now, we have a PhD in um, science was out working in the science lab and she's decided that was great. And now I want to go share my passion for science with students. And I think that's one of the things we really look for is people who have a passion for something because we want part of our program is how can you bring who you are and what your strengths are, what your passions are, your interests into your class to create some project-based learning that is going to lend itself to some of the most incredible educational experiences for your students. So those are the types of people we're looking for. How they come to us, some look for, they start researching project-based learning. Some of them research concepts of deeper learning. Some of them have been, we have alums of our high-tech high schools that are now in our program. They said, well, this is how I went to school. My life changed when I did that. I want to be that for someone else. I only want to get my credential through a program that is like-minded in that way. So we've got people who come through that way. I know that um, my passion really is social justice and education being a form of social justice. So I've been doing side chats, fireside chats, I'll kind of call them. And they're not necessarily recruiting, but it's just sharing like teaching is social justice. This is how you bring it into your room. This is how you disrupt some of the things you're seeing that are going on in the world. This is how you liberate humans is by being a teacher with the tools that we're helping you get within the program. So, um, and, and that it's a residency model was another thing I was thinking about is it's an apprenticeship. So as Sarah said, you spend a lot of time with the cooperating teacher, a lot more time. I think we have uh, 900 hours or so and the state requirement is like 600 hours. So you are deeply ingrained in that school community from pre-planning days to graduation or promotion or whatever the, the last day is. So you really get to experience what being a teacher is from you know day one to day 180. Yeah, wow. I mean, that just sounds so valuable. I think if you ask any veteran teacher like, and, and talk, talk to them about that kind of experience. Like if they wish, if they could go back and change anything about their own, you know, student teaching experience or, you know, how they went through college and all that kind of stuff. hundred percent. I think they would be like, that is the model that I should have done that, you know, this whole, how fast can I get through school and how fast can I just get into the classroom? I think you're right. It's, it's just setting yourself up for failure basically down the line. I mean, that's, we were just talking earlier about, you know, teachers leaving the profession and why they leave. I think it's because they're highly unprepared for being in the field here. Um, and that they, they don't last the, the first five years or they're, they're out. Um, so that's, your program sounds amazing. And is it, is it that anybody can really apply for it or is it, do you have to be in California or? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we, the second year of our program, we're a two-year program, like uh, Carl said much earlier. And the first year is the residency is like the pre-service year um, where you earn your teaching license by the end. But the second year, most of our folks are teachers of record. So they're first year teachers in their own classrooms, but they continue um, taking coursework. And this is one of the, the other ways that our program is different. Um, and they finish out their master's degree with the same cohort, with the support of the same program. 
we're in their classrooms, they're, they're posing dilemmas and opportunities of practice and um, kind of investigating those through their master's capstone project. We lean on this model of lesson study. So they're in each other's classrooms regularly. So anyway, that is to say it's, it's an in-person program for the second year, which, which functionally means that our folks are expected to start their careers in and around San Diego County. We've had folks who have started their careers as far away as uh, Los Angeles and just been road warriors and driven down every Wednesday night for classes that second year. Um, but we're really, we're trying to be like a regional driver of teacher quality um, and, and transformation. And so although we, we increasingly um, have great conversations with teacher preparation all around the country and we aspire to have an impact on the thinking and the design of other programs, our actual students are, you know, we see them as um, folks who need to have some kind of investment to staying in, in the region. So we recruit very heavily locally um, and, and that's by design. We try to do a kind of grow your own approach where we're looking for folks who are um, peripheral to education, who have shown an interest, who are working at the Y or working as classified staff in a school district or substitute teachers. Um, we really have a preference for folks who have deep knowledge and experience of the communities here because we know that it's really important for kids to see, um, you know, demographics and, and the people who have grown up in their own communities um, in the classroom. So Yes, we do have people who, um, you know, are excited about high tech and our model and our values and they come from New York and they come from overseas actually we have a few international students this year but we also are really thinking hard about, you know, not wanting to have a kind of educational tourism approach to education like we want people who are going to stay in these communities to serve these kids because you know teaching San Diego is different than teaching in New York or Boston or Louisiana or wherever I mean you, there's things you need to know about the, the history and the values and the cultures that are um, specific to where we live. Now, can you talk a little bit about the mentor teacher's role and how, I don't know, how do you become a mentor teacher? Obviously I, I, you're a teacher from high tech high, I'm assuming. And um, are you kind of recruited for that? Do you volunteer for it or is it, and, and is there is there a stipend involved for being um, being the mentor teacher since it, you, I think you mentioned that you have to attend uh, professional development as part of the requirements. So can you talk to me a little bit about, about what that's like? I'll take that one. And so um, we call them cooperating teachers and the language is purposeful in that they are co-teaching with their resident and we do a gradual release model. So in the beginning, the resident jumps in, really, we tell them you need to be doing something day one. And um, there's a gradual release or exchange of who's leading, whether the planning, the activity, that type of thing. As for selection, it's, it's, um, it's very unique and eclectic, just like how we are. We are looking for people with the qualities that we want our residents to emulate. So are they strong in project-based learning? Are they, do they even know what deeper learning is? <laughs> you know, are they equity-minded? What are some of the things that they do in their classroom that are aligned with the things that we feel as a program are very important? Um, it's not a who wants a student teacher this year. It's definitely that. And um, having been new, I you know, walked into this process last year, I was fascinated to find that there's this brainstorm between the school directors, previous cooperating teachers, and GSC faculty members who worked alongside people. Then there's an actual conversation that occurs. And so it's like, well, here's a menu of our potential, you know, residents placements 
here's what their personalities and strengths are like. Here's who we kind of have in mind for you. How do you feel about that? And it's a mutual agreement between the resident and the cooperating teacher. So you don't just get, you know, thrown in with someone and cross your fingers that you get along or that you have similar philosophies. And then they meet in the beginning of the year. Um, We have a retreat for the cooperating teachers, but we have the residents come for half a day. They're doing um, get to know you and planning activities like you get the best of me when you get the worst of me when. My communication style is this. If I'm making a mistake, this is the best time to help me. Like we really foster those relationships within and and each throughout the year, we have regular communication with the cooperating teachers based on what's coming up in your residence life. Here's some things we've been seeing. You know, here's some tips and tricks and how to best support them. Here's even some sentence stems for some rough conversations that might need to occur, you know, and really try to groom, foster, support the cooperating teacher just as much as the resident in many ways. So they do get a stipend. We would love for it to be more. Um, But I think the people who really enjoy being a cooperating teacher, that the words that they have shared with me is, wow, I didn't realize how much I needed this too. I've learned so much. I have... um, I have grown. It's made when they ask me questions, I have to ask myself, why do I do that? And and really helps them refine and hone in their own practices. So it's it's really a special thing to watch on the um, the cooperating teacher end as well. So the stipend is seven hundred fifty dollars right now. We're That's pretty good. <laughs> hundred dollars. Yeah. I mean, really, just like with teaching, no amount of money is enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even bringing them um, to the, not COVID times, but bringing them to the graduate school, they love the time together, just as cooperating teachers to get together and talk about problems of practice and supports and different things they're doing with their residents. They always take frantic notes and do all kinds of, and they've learned from each other probably more than they even learned from us just from that time. They're granted to be with each other by having their resident take over their class so that they can come for their own professional growth as well. So it's really a special relationship. And again, based on the places I've been, I have never seen um, anyone held in such a way, both for I admire all the wonderful things you know, and here's some, some tools to help share that with the resident. Here's what we're trying to teach them. Here's how things work together and go and, and, and watch the magic happen. Yeah, no, it, it that sounds like magic to, to be honest. Like, like it's like utopia there. <laughs> well, I'll, I I want to just like <laughs> be a be some real talk here too, because I think <laughs> I think our model is everything Carol says it is, and everything she's saying is true. And like you know, it's an it's still an arranged marriage. And in fact, in this case, it's like a year long arranged marriage. It's not even. I mean, the 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 one upside to having programs that have shorter clinical placements is that you know if it's if it doesn't work out well with the person you placed with, you only have to deal with them for what like ten weeks, twelve weeks. Um, so you know, I I, I want to be really clear that like a lot of Carol's and my time and some of our colleagues is spent supporting, um, you know, problem solving conversations when communication is breaking down or when um, a resident and a cooperating teacher aren't, uh, they're they're not telling each other the thing and they need to. And um, 
helping cooperating teachers let go of control because a lot of our folks that we um, work with in the program are incredible teachers who, because they're incredible teachers, care a lot about the experiences their students have. And that makes it hard for them to allow a novice to try stuff and sometimes not try it very well, right? You've got to try something and then get better at it. So there's certainly like there's, it's not all, I think the model is strong. We, we stand by the model. I don't, I'm not sure it can get much better, um, but, but we, we certainly like don't want to, I would say one more thing, which is the residency model, um, which obviously we really believe in, also means that there's a certain amount of like long-term power sharing that has to happen between a, a novice and an expert, um, as well as a transfer of knowledge, but it's not just a monkey see, monkey do it's really over time we want our residents taking on responsibilities and starting to make decisions and practice what it means to think and act like a teacher. And that means that the cooperating teachers really need to make real room for that teacher's learning and growth in their classroom. Um, and that's a new strand of work for many of them. And it's different than it might've been for them to engage with more traditional programs where somebody parachutes in for a little while and does some demo teaching or some observation at the back of the room. So that also is something we're continuing to grapple with is like, how do we help our cooperating teachers develop a practice, but also a set of mindsets around the growth of this novice teacher being one of the things that they do, because I think some of them come into it and it sounds like a great experience and they're excited to do it, but they haven't really grappled with the fact that like, it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time and love and care and attention and maintenance to um, support that work. In addition to supporting all the, you know, the 60 kids you might have coming through your room on a given day. So it's, there's still a lot of stuff that we're working through for sure. It sounds to me like one of the most important distinguishers of the program that y'all are engaging with here is that there is that support there, that there's actual people like y'all who are dedicated to supporting those challenging conversations, those uh, mentor teachers, who I think are often forgotten about in the relationship that you're discussing, right? It's often about the novice teacher who is coming into this experience and needs all of the lifting and support and whatever, and that the mentor teacher is automatically going to know what to do because they're a teacher, right? Of course, they know how to teach. What's the difference between teaching I don't know, first graders and a novice teacher. I think that's a lot of difference, but you know, sometimes I don't think that programs are designed around the idea that there is a lot of difference between teaching adults, especially in the way that you're describing and teaching young people. Um, and I, and I just want to share one quick thing is that I definitely have, uh, a moment of like shuddering reflection on my own hosting of a student teacher and my own type A tendencies, like uh, rearing their ugly fangs in that experience and me sitting back being like, oh my gosh, don't intervene, don't intervene, don't intervene. <laughs> and so the, the uh, you know, potential for support in my own um, being able to kind of step back and let, you know, whatever needed to happen, happen so that novice teacher could learn would have been really awesome. I would have loved that. Um, I don't want to get too much more into the description of the San Diego teacher residency, because I think that y'all have given us a, a pretty broad sketch about how things function. So, and running short on time. So I want to kick over to Julie, because I know Julie's been quietly sitting here 
and nodding her head and smiling and just being like, oh my gosh, if only I could get some of these ideas and these brains in the room with me as I'm messing around with teacher education here in Pennsylvania. So Julie, I know you got some questions to kind of help us and our listeners think about those things. Well, I, yeah, I just have two quick questions. Um, I'm always interested to know, you know, what's next for, for both of you? Uh, what's next, uh, perhaps in your, uh, what are your goals uh, to grow um, either personally or grow the uh, residency program? Um, so just thinking about goals in your program and then thinking about the future of, this is a big question, future of teacher prep programs you know, you had some outreach ideas. Um, is there like a residency of your residency <laughs> in, the, in the works, something like that? I don't know, but you know, just generally what's next? So as a program, um, one of the things that's important to us is um, we don't wanna get so huge that we're not able to um, do all the things we just talked about. We, we also, on the, in the same frame, though, have this beautiful idea. We want to have our teachers all over the county. We want to um, send out these teacher warriors who are equity-minded, focused on deeper learning, and to go revolutionize the definition of teacher all out, all over the place. And so one of the things that we're working on right now is looking at partnerships with some other school districts. So not right now, all of our residents are housed within one of our high tech high 16 campuses. And we think it would be amazing to have a partnership with a couple other districts and other parts of the county so that we can start to infuse some of these qualities within Meanwhile, help with the overall teacher shortage because we're helping them with grow your own type programs. They're invested deeply, suddenly the professional development spreading all through their district as well. And so I think that's the vision of like how our little stone in the water is going to ripple as we move forward. So um, definitely something that is, is at hand. And then um, a goal... I think for me and the program is really this, I want our teachers and myself to be bilingual in policy and practice. I think teachers are not taught to feel empowered to speak up with things that are going on, to make changes about, um, you know, step up, speak up, go to the school board. You know, you don't have to be the principal to be the leader, the importance of teacher leadership, all of those things. And I think a lot of those qualities are modeled by our faculty. They're seen in our schools and our residents are learning. This is a new way that I can be involved. And I literally just said that yesterday, like we have to get involved in policy decisions because um, while we're teachers, beautiful. Yes, we can teach, but we also need to go wreck stuff and change stuff, fix it and rebuild it. You know, that's who's got to go in and make the differences. So I think that whole speaking both languages of policy and practice, teacher leadership, um, that's another, I think, big goal that is it's easing in um, and it's definitely informal right now. But that's a vision that I, I can see that's great as well. Sarah, anything to add to that? 
Not a lot. Carol said it so beautifully. Um, I, I would just uh, sketch out the vision you you set, Carol, in terms of um, spreading our wings and, and having partnerships beyond and, and clinical placements for our student teachers beyond high tech high schools. Were, I would say that um, this is one way in which the, the vision for the program is drawing on my uh, the research um, and school visits that I spent so long doing for the book because one of the things I and Jal and I encountered when we visited literally 30 different schools was that every school, regardless of how it's organized, has teachers who are deeply committed to deeper learning and to social justice and who are doing that work often in corners alone with their doors closed or they know the one or two other colleagues in the building who have shared commitments. So, but it, it was it was almost inevitable we would find those folks. So that, you know, the bad news was regardless of how it was organized also had a lot of teachers who weren't doing that, uh, innovative ones. Um, but anyway, that's to say, we, we know, I mean, Carol was one of these teachers, that's how we found her. Um, but we know that there are a lot of really amazing educators out there and they're not all in the schools that are glitzy you know darlings of this that and the other um some of them are just you know garden variety district public schools in underfunded districts and we want to find that i think our vision for partnership in part is like find those people um invite them to be cooperating teachers hopefully have enough supports for them if they want to do that work and then have like network them together by being cooperating teachers and engaging uh, in our program, they can meet each other, they can meet folks from high tech, we can learn from them, they can learn from us, they get to know that they're not alone. And I think that, you know, it's a, it, it, we're a small program, we're never going to get huge, like Carol said, but I, I think our goal would also be to become a kind of one input into a kind of career ladder teacher network that can help to spread some of the values that we're looking for and, and identify where that work is already happening and, and like create that as a site for teacher learning, but also for kind of like, um, for visibility and, and so forth. Obviously, it's a, an excellent model that others could adopt. Um, you know, if, if it's all local, um, that same approach could be replicated elsewhere um, or pieces of it, or, you know, definitely, I think there's a lot of uh, teacher prep programs that believe in everything you've said, and there's so many things, you know, in their way, uh, but you've plowed your way through. Um, there, there is a way forward, and I think that's that's the message. Uh, so, for those of anyone who's listening who would like to learn more, you know, they'll be they'll be checking you guys out. That's for sure. <laughs> I've got lots of thoughts. We're at the segment of the podcast where we take a step back and kind of reflect on our conversation. And um, Carolyn, Sarah, you're more than welcome to reflect on along with us. Uh, and I want to start maybe with Janine. Janine, what is this conversation? making you rethink about education oh just that it's all wrong no <laughs> <laughs> no I, he's making me think that oh, all right somebody out there is doing it right yeah, yeah um man i loved everything that you said about that program i mean julie and i um talk about this frequently and uh, uh julie's actually doing a lot of behind the scenes work she can talk more about it but um <laughs> with, with trying to figure out teacher prep programs and what's not working for people, why are teachers leaving? So um, yeah, everything that you had to say about the, the program, the residency program, um, we, we've tried actually, uh, our, one of our colleagues um, had looked at trying to 
encourage a residency program around us, like using our school as a learning lab. Cause I, you know, I said, we're what, like the number one school in the state. So send us your teacher. We want to teach people to teach like us. Like we want them to do well, but man, there's the red tape is unbelievable. Um, that's, that's a piece of it is the red tape. The other piece of it is I think it's that mindset that people just want to get through college. They just want to get it done. They just want to get their degree, their certification, whatever it is so that they can, you know, be in the classroom and start making some money. But that that's, if you can't see beyond that or like why that model is not so great, then, you know, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard, hard to navigate that for sure. Julie, what do you, what's on your mind? I'm I'm just thinking about starting points, you know, um, with some more traditional models uh, that I that I know of in our area, in the Philadelphia area. Um, You know, people are, you know, just waking up to the idea um, that there could be a project, um, you know, at all. (laughs) So uh, there could be, you know, people just waking up to the idea that, you know, uh, this residency model is is a completely new uh, idea for them. So. Um, you know, taking baby steps is great, but um, I really like your idea of wrecking things. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I get impatient sometimes and um, I think you're exactly right. Um, some of this red tight tape, like somebody laid those roadblocks down. Um, you know, how do we uh, hold up a mirror to some of the policymakers and say, you know, why um, did it take you guys, you know, 10 years, you said, or something like that to get uh, your accreditation, you know, what, what kind of model, if we say what we say, um, we want, and all schools, um, teacher prep programs, you know, talk about project-based learning. Um, but then if they're placed in a school that doesn't have bells going off every 42 minutes and they can't get their five classes in a day, because that's how that middle school team works in my particular instance, then, that project-based school is disqualified from, because we don't meet there. There's, there's, we're not on the same page. We're having two totally different conversations about what that's going to look like. So I like wreck it. (laughs) I like start all over again. Um, But I, I, I think there's inroads to be made. And I think this conversation, uh, you know, could, at least get people to start asking some questions. Carol, what's coming up for you as a result of this conversation? I am thinking about um, in the last few months, the number of touch points I've had with other organizations across this, mostly the Western half of the US that are introducing a residency model or they have a plan for a residency model. And I'm excited about California and there are other states as well that have allocated money for teacher residencies or changes to teacher preparation. It's like, finally, now that, you know, there's going to be like zero teachers, they're realizing, oh, maybe we should do something different. And so I feel like it's a prime opportunity to step in and say, well, yeah, you should have done it a long time ago. But now that you're listening, here's something that works beautifully. Help us this time rather than block us because it's unfamiliar to you. You know, so I feel oddly a sense of like excitement because I feel like change coming around the corner. It's going to have to. Has to come. Has to come. Has to come. So that now we have this opportunity to throw in a new model with evidence showing Mm -hmm. this is why this is the plan. Not that it's a blueprint in a cookie cutter because then that takes away the whole 
um, individualized programs, but that you can use something as a base that you know works better than the system in place. It's um, it's encouraging for, sure. I think, for me. Sarah, what's on your mind? I feel like I'm the downer in every conversation these days. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I, <laughs> Bring um, it, Sarah. Come I'm, on. Um, <laughs> I am very, I am excited, like genuinely heartened to see that there is, that the residency movement started like 20 years ago with, with Boston, but it really did not grow legs until quite recently in terms of policies and funding. So I, I am really excited at the momentum and the conversation and, and we've been at some of those tables and it's real. Um, you know, I just chatted folks that California just allocated $350 million for the next five years to support residency models and expanding. So that's great news. Um, I, the thing I'm most excited about that connects to my more pessimistic questions is a conversation about, okay, we know how to transform teacher preparation and the onboarding process. Um, we need to do it. That, that's a tall order. Um, but we also really need to think about what happens when they enter schools and as their touches with their programs start to loosen um, and the reality of their day-to-day -day in those schools becomes their world. Like we know that the working conditions in schools are, are untenable. That's why people are leaving among other things. It's not just about poor preparation, although that's one, one driver. Um, so I'm, I see it happening because we're in year four and we have a few cohorts now that are in their second and third year as teachers of record. And, and I can see it start, things start to fray for them. Um, despite our best efforts and despite having entered the profession with better preparation, Working in schools is really, really hard. It always has been, but it's it's worse now than it ever has been. I think there's a, a crisis. I don't know if it's already a crisis or it's brewing, but I, I would be excited to see how this work can really be about like teacher lifespan, like the lifespan of a career of somebody who can and wants to stay in the profession. And how do we link high quality teacher preparation to high quality induction and supports to changes in schools that allow teachers to stay? I mean, it's, it's all connected. And I'm afraid that like any one intervention on any, any of those points is not going to be fully effective till we actually are intervening coherently uh, across all those things. Um, and I, th I think we can do it. I mean, in, on my better days, I think we can do it. Um, but it's, it's like so huge. It sometimes overwhelms me because I'm like, okay, we, we've got their first two years under control. We know how to do that pretty well. We're getting better every time, but, um, let's talk about the next 30 or at least the next 10, you know, what does it take to help them stay and how do we help schools figure out what that looks like? And, um, so that's, that's where my mind's at right now. I thank you, Sarah. That's, that's awesome. And I just want to bring up one thing that Carol said earlier that I think is fascinating and super important. I often talk about education changes needing to happen both from the top down and the bottom up at the same time, right? And if you don't get both of those mechanisms working together, then the bottom up people get all burned out and um, change is interesting and cool. And then it just is gobbled up by policy. And then if you take uh, the policy top down approach, then the everyday teacher at their classroom is like, no, I'm not doing it. Or they're like, oh, I have to do this standardized test again. And I'm going to spend, you know, three weeks prepping for it, which is going to take away from my, you know, natural classroom experience and true learning with students. And so I'm interested in what Carol was talking about earlier and preparing teachers to essentially be the advocates, both at the pedagogical level and at the policy level, and how important that is for leaders at in that are spending their every day in the classroom sphere, standing up and saying like, 
this is untenable working space. Like having seven preps in a day for different classes is untenable. Even my, even though my school is small, even though I might have, you know, um, only 25 students in each of my classes, seven preps is really, really, really hard, right? Um, and I think that there is just more power to be um, shared with teachers and more um, uplifting of teachers' voices in that space to really, I think, impact both top-down and bottom-up efforts. And that the veil needs to be lifted, right? We need to see what's happening in classrooms in order to help support teachers more. And that is community-wide, in my opinion. And so this is my uh, takeaway from this conversation is that let's empower teachers. Let's do that work. Let's get together, do everything we can to really put teachers in a space where they are feeling like they can stay for longer than however many years <laughs> the average teacher lifespan is. Too few, I think, is the answer to that question. All right. We always end our podcasts with plugs, opportunities for you all to plug something you're listening to. Um, I will plug... Uh, um, uh, flavored seltzer waters this evening. I'm drinking a bubbly and um, I just ordered a whole case of spin drifts. They're sitting on the counter. Really lovely. If y'all aren't um, uh, uh, seltzer water drinkers out there, uh, you should give it a try. The white peach and ginger bubbly is very tasty. Uh, Julie, what do you want to plug? I've got nothing for you, Mike. I've got absolutely nothing. I, I Along lines of these, this conversation, I haven't read a book. I've, I've got two here that I like to read, The Power of Positive Deviance and I love this it. National Book Award winner, Olive Kitteridge, um, <laughs> Pulitzer Prize. Have you have you read either of those or no? No. I would okay, like okay, to. Fair enough. Janine, <laughs> do you have any plugs? Um, they probably make loads of money, but I'm going to plug HelloFresh for right now because Julie got me suckered into getting them and now they just keep coming and my kids like them except my, my husband's like I can't cook these things there's too many directions <laughs> if if you're listening hello fresh people and you send <laughs> yeah, us a promo code we will drop it in the show notes and we will share it with all of our listeners <laughs> and we would love to be promoted on the next box of, uh, of hello fresh yeah Carol what would you like to plug well, being in the middle of my doctoral world right now, most of my reading is research related, but I'm all this book uh, is kind of both. It's called The Spirit of Our Work Black Women Teachers Remember by Cynthia Dillard. And it's really talking about drawing on community and supporting one another. A lot of the tenants that I see in the residency, that's what it takes for teachers to stay. And this individualized, go in my room, shut the door. I got this by myself. It's like, it's not working. So we need to go back and remember what real learning was and what real teaching was and become a community again. So um, I really, in, you know, five minute bites here and there, I'm reading it, but I'm really enjoying that book. I love it. Um, and Sarah, what would you like to plug? Well, I think my colleagues would probably um, lock me out of my office if I didn't plug uh, the Deeper Learning Conference hosted by High Tech High TC. So uh, I'll, I'll do course, it. I'll do course. it. Um, it's, it's genuinely amazing. Um, the graduate school puts on this incredible conference every year, um, which is 
hosted and organized by um, some of my incredible colleagues, but also we bring together progressive educators from all over the world. Um, I believe it is going to be both. It's going to have a in-person and, and virtual component this year. Um, and I think the registration is still open. Honestly, it's our spring break every year. Deeper Learning is a week when we could be on vacation and it, every year it is actually worth my time to go. So, um, which says a lot because we don't get a ton of vacation. So um, I think it's a, a great opportunity if you wanna get to know the graduate school or just connect with other folks. Um, we'd love to see you here at the end of March this year. Awesome. That's great. And listeners, we'll drop all of those plugs in our show notes. And uh, Janine, Julie, as always, it's been a pleasure. Carol, Sarah, it's really been lovely uh, for us to speak with you. Listeners, we know that you enjoyed this conversation um, as much as we did, and we hope that you'll come back and listen to the rest of our series on teacher prep programs. As always, thank you for listening and keep rethinking EDU.